Job chapter uh, 35, Job chapter 35, 16 verses. We'll read all 16 verses. I want to say some things about Elihu. Elihu is still speaking here. And then I want to divide this chapter and we'll go through it and be brief with each, each division. The Bible says in Job 35, beginning in verse 1, Elihu spake moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidst, My righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidst, What advantage will it be unto thee, and what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer thee and thy companions with thee. Look into the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy, if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. But none saith, Where is God, my maker, who giveth songs in the night, who teacheth us more than the beast of the earth, and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven? There they cry, but none giveth answer, because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. He multiplieth words without knowledge. You remember Elihu is the young man that has sat now for some time. He's listened to the back and forth between Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz started the rounds of speeches. He had three speeches he wanted to make, did make. Job rebutted all three. Eliphaz offered three speeches, and when he finished, Job rebutted him. Zophar offered two speeches, and when he finished, Job had something to say to him as well. You remember his first three friends were very accusatory. They assumed that Job had great sin or a practice of sin hidden uh, from his neighbors, and uh, they were very accusatory. This angered Elihu. You remember that? Chapter number 32, when he steps forth to speak, he's angry about everything he has said and listened. As a matter of fact, he's like a tea kettle on a hot stove eye. Now, he's taken all he can take. Now, he did wait until they were finished. But now, now that they're through, he's got something to say. And uh, you remember, he's also angry at Job because Job claimed to be righteous. Thus, in his claim for righteousness, uh, he is claiming God to be unfair in the fact that these trials have come into his life. Elihu, as we mentioned just a moment ago, he began speaking in chapter number 32. He continues through chapter number 37. And here's one of the things about Elihu and what he has to say that is recorded in chapter 32 through 37. Uh, It's either one long speech or there are breaks in the speech or there are several speeches. I was considering this um, last week and again this week. And, and I'm settled about it. Chapter 33, verse 1 says, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, plural. 
So I was looking forward in recent days. I was looking for the breaks in, uh, in Elihu's speeches. There are four of them. Chapter 32 and 33, that's his first speech. And uh, chapter number 34, that's his second speech. Chapter 35, that's his third speech. 36 and 37 is his fourth and final speech. You notice when he started in chapter number 32, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Then, of course, it's going to go on down here and say, in verse number 6, And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. And so he begins his first speech, and it's recorded again in chapters 32 and 33. Chapter 34, you'll notice the break in the beginning again. Chapter 34, verse 1, Furthermore, Elihu answered and said. Chapter 35, there's a break at the end of 34. And then chapter 35 begins, Elihu spake moreover and said. And then in chapter 36 and 37, that will be the final speech where 36 begins, Elihu also proceeded and said. That's interesting. I was reading back through these chapters this morning. It's interesting. Soon as Eliphaz, as soon as he got silent, Job weighed in all three times. Same with Bildad, same with the two speeches with Zophar. As soon as he got silent, Job weighed in and defended himself. Job never says a word. When Elihu finishes these four speeches, he never says a word the first time to him. He never says a first. He's not trying to rebut anything. He's listening. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you who speaks after Elihu speaks. God speaks. God speaks. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced Elihu is a most valuable friend to Job. I'm convinced of it. Um, Job never one time has to say, look, I, I didn't deserve this. I, not one time does he have to say that. Not the first time to Elihu. Now, when Elihu began, as we mentioned just a moment or two ago, when he began speaking in chapter number 32, he's speaking very strongly. In chapter number 32, we're introduced to Elihu. He kept saying over and again in one form or another, he kept saying, I have something to say, and I'm fit, and we'll be fair in what I'm going to say. In chapter number 33, He gave Job a good word. He said, Job, God is not silent regarding his people. God speaks to his people. In Job chapter number 34, he says, Job, he said, God's not absent. He's present with his children. He's always present with his people. And then here in chapter number 35, he says to Job, in essence, God is not uncaring, Job. And he's going to do what he's done twice before. He's going to quote Job at his own words, give them right back to him. And then he's going to tell him what's wrong with that. His whole outlook's all fouled up. Let me just remind you in chapter number 34, and it bleeds right into chapter number 35 as far as the feel of it all. Of course, we could go back to 32 and walk through it, but we won't. But back in chapter number 34, you remember Job is quoted by his friend Elihu. He said, Job, you said, You said, Job, that I'm righteous and God's been unfair to me. He said, you said that, Job. 
He said, you said, Job, I've been wounded and my wound is incurable. He said, you said that, Job. And then he said, that was verse 5, then verse 6, then 7 through 9. He said, then you ask the question, what does it profit a man to serve God if all he's going to get out of the deal is suffering? He said, Job, you ask that. You feel like God has indicted an innocent man. He said, I'm going to tell you what's wrong with every bit of it, Job, and I want you to listen to me. Thank God for the faithful wounds of a friend. Sometimes a doctor has to hurt you to help you, doesn't he? Um, Dale Foster sitting among us tonight. Surgery, pain, therapy, getting to where he can get, re, uh, have the use of where he said surgery. Uh, even the Spirit of God inflicts a wound before a man can be saved. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If a man will respond in repentance and faith, then he will apply the salve of salvation and seal his soul unto the day of Christ. Thank God for a friend like Elihu. Somebody that will pull his eyes off this world and put them right back on the Lord of glory. Listen to Elihu's contention. Listen to how he contends with Job. That's chapter 34, and we're fixing to get into chapter number 35. But he contended back in 34, 10 to 12, God judges every man rightly. Job, you've accused him of not doing so, but he judges every man rightly. In verses 13 to 15, he contends with Job that God answers to no one. And he doesn't. A lot of times we, when questioning why even, we think God owes us an answer. He doesn't. He doesn't owe us an answer. He contended in verses 16 to 20 that God is impartial. An impartial ruler over all. He's not impressed with kings nor princes. 21 to 25 of the previous chapter, Elihu contended that God is the omniscient judge of all. He don't have to ask for an investigative committee to come report about me nor about you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows everything you know about me, and he knows everything you don't know about me. And he knows everything about you, what I know about you, and what I don't know about you. It's all ever before him. He's omniscient. There's nothing God doesn't know. He isn't learning anything. His knowledge is perfect. And then he contended that God's in control, that nothing escapes him. And again, he emphasizes that God answers to no one. And then he contended with him that, again, that he didn't owe us an explanation in that chapter. You, you, remember, you remember the three previous friends of Job. You remember their accusations were harsh. You will remember on one occasion that one of the friends even said, Job, the reason why you lost your children is because of your sin. How harsh can a man be to another man and pretend to be his friend? They kept saying, there's something back there, Job. You're you're a hypocrite. There's something back there. But here's Elihu. Elihu, when he steps forward, He is saying, in essence, in all of these chapters, he is saying, in essence, Job, I don't know if there's anything back there or not, but I know your attitude right now is all fouled up about God. And if you don't get that in order, everything's going to be fouled up out there in the future. 
Did you know if we aren't careful, we'll let our circumstances get the best of us? And we'll form our own ideas about what God may or may not be doing in and through our lives. We'll think he's been unfair to us. He's been unjust with us. We crossed our T's. We dotted our I's. And why? Why the diagnosis? Why the trial? Etc. Fill in the blank. That's where Job's at. Job is human. By the way, I haven't visited this since the second or third chapter, but God knew all about Job's accusations, and he did not cast him away. Joni Erickson Tata, uh, she has stated for years, that's one of the reasons why she loves the book of Job, when he came dangerously close to cursing God, God did not curse him. He loves his children tonight. That ought to make a Lutheran want to shout. That he knows us, all about us, and yet he still loves us. He still sees to us. He still claims us. You remember way back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he asked, and we made a play on this, but he asked, Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? He asked that as a proud father speaking of, of his son. You been by Job's place? You got any notes on him in your notebook? You got any pictures in your files on him? Do you know him? And he still, knowing what he would do, he still, he still loved him. He still loved him. Elihu, before he ever began speaking, he's been listening to these three friends go back and forth with Job. He's been analyzing, critiquing it all in his own heart and mind, never says a word. And to, his, uh, to the elder men until they finish and until Job has had his last say. And, uh, and then, uh, then he, um, he steps forward and begins to speak. He, he wants Job to recapture uh, a right view of God. And I'm going to tell you something. If the wheels ever run off in your life, a right view of God will help you get up tomorrow and will help you get through the day. The weather... Um, Forecasters may forecast a storm before the week's out, but you'll survive it if you can get your eyes on and keep your eyes on a biblical view of God. It'll help you lay down and sleep at night. It'll help you rest in God. Um, so he said in chapter 33, he said, God's not silent, Job. Chapter 34, God's not unjust, Job. In this chapter, he's going to say to him, God's not uncaring. In the next two chapters, he'll say, God's not powerless. He's not handcuffed. His hands are not tied behind his back, Job. God can do whatever God wants to do. If God answers your prayer and changes the landscape of your life, thank him for it. If he doesn't, he has grace to get you through the landscape and arrangements of your life. We all could take time about and testify to it, couldn't we? Where he's brought us from, how he brought us from, uh, and may God help us to pass that down to these, this next generation. Wouldn't it be good to know that we could uh, somehow learn in heaven long after we're gone that there's a generation or two or three coming on that will step in our places one of these days? Uh, this world is wicked, growing darker by the moment, and it's going to grow even darker for our children and our grandchildren. You mark it down. This thing ain't going to get any better, friend. 
Our problem is not with who's in the White House. Our problem is a heart problem. It's a sin, wickedness problem. It ain't getting any better. ain't getting any better. Wouldn't it be wonderful one of these days when uh, the old gospel ship docks in heaven's harbor to find out that we planted the right seeds? And your boys and your girls and boys and your girl and your girl and boy and the rest of these little fellas, your boy and your little girl, wouldn't it be wonderful if they could walk through the pearly gates one of these days grinning like a possum saying, my God, he did it for us. We believed him. The winds blew against us. The adversity came against us at every turn. We were that generation that was taken out in the fire. But we stood. Thank you for giving us the truth. You remember what the three Hebrew boys said? They said, Nebuchadnezzar, we ain't bowing. Our God's able to deliver. We ain't bowing. He's able. But if he chooses not to. But if not, that's okay too. We still ain't bowing. You put all the pressure you want to on us. But we're not bowing. If these, I can just imagine Meshach maybe saying, if these two decide they're going to bow out, I'm still not bowing. Elihu, though he spoke strong words, he does speak, um, he does speak the truth. And he's going to bring Job to a place where Job's ready. Job's ready to hear from God. And I can't wait to get to that section when God speaks. He can say more than five seconds in a service than we can say all month or a year of Sundays. He can change hearts and minds. Um, I want to say something, and I want to say this rightly. Elihu does come across strong, especially in the beginning in chapter 32, doesn't he? But we even heard this, and, and, and I would not take a shot. We all disagree. We Every one of us disagrees. Every one of us preachers, if we sat down, if I sat down with Brother Troy and Brother Lynn uh, tonight, and we started talking theology, or we started talking ecclesiology, which has to do with the church, we're going to disagree somewhere. We don't have to fight about it. Unless they want to take a whooping, we don't have to fight about it. <laughs> but we all disagree somewhere. We even heard... In one of our morning services, it was not said with malice, but said the statement was made that Elihu was a young smart aleck. He's not. Elihu's not a young smart aleck. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced he had more wisdom about him than those three old heads. They just knew. Job, you got to have sin in your life. Elihu don't know if they sinned back there or not. But he knows it's a sin to get a wrong view of God, and Job will never get through this. Stumbling and staggering around with a wrong view of God. Look with me at verses 1 through 8. Elihu will begin his third address. Now, we'll look at verses 9 through 11. Elihu will make a much-needed emphasis in 9 through 11. In 12 to 16, Elihu... It's going to give a valuable reminder, and we'll go through this in a hurry. In verses 1 through 8, Elihu begins his third address. Verses 1, 2, and 3, he will address Job specifically. In verses 4 to 8, he will address Job and the other friends of Job. Watch verses 1, 2, and 3. Elihu addresses Job specifically. Elihu spake moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou, 
He said, Job, you said it. That thou saidst my righteousness is more than God's? He said, Job, your whole idea of this thing is wrong. No matter what, if God chose to do something to me tonight, I cannot point my finger at him. God doesn't do anything wrong. And we're hurting bad if we point the finger at God, aren't we? Either that or we're very selfish, one of the two. Or perhaps ignorant of what the word teaches. Verse number three, he said, for thou says, you said this, Job, what advantage will it be unto thee? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? So again, he's quoting him now for the third time. He says, Job, what I'm saying in my correction of you is not baseless. You said this. Job didn't argue with him. He listened to him. A listening ear is a good place to start. A listening ear. A quiet soul. A still heart. In your Bible reading time. That's a good demeanor to read in. Quiet. Still. Not getting in a hurry. Not hearing from the news channel before you hear from anybody else. Listen to what God may have to say to you. Be still. Be still. He said, Job, you said living for God brings no reward. He said, Job, that's all fouled up now. You said it, but it's not right. It's not right. We do not live for God for what we can get out of it, right? We do not live for God for what we can get out of it. I've heard men older than I through the years... um, not a multitude, but I have heard a few along the way. Uh, I've been in the way now for some 33 years, I guess. I have heard a few men say, well, I serve God so he can bless me. If you know him, he's already blessed you. We don't serve God for what we can get out of it serve him because we love him we serve him out of thanksgiving and appreciation we serve him because we worship him we bow before him so he addresses Job specifically in verses 4 to 8 now he's going to address Job and his three friends notice with me verses 4 through 8 I will answer thee and thy companions with thee. Look unto the heavens. He said, look up in the sky. Verse number five. Look unto the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hands? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. In other words, you may affect your own life or the lives of those around you, but what are you going to do to the character of God? Just as sure as the the clouds are beyond your reach, you can't grasp them, you cannot reach them. He said, so it is with the character of God. You're not going to... He said, if you are unrighteous, you're not going to change him. If you are righteous, you're not going to change him. You may affect this world. You may affect your own being and your own people around you. 
But you don't change God. Now, Elihu is not saying that God doesn't care. And he is not saying that, uh, that uh, Job, uh, you have a license to sin because we all have a responsibility before God. But what he's saying is, is you can hurl accusation against God all you want to, Job, but it ain't hurting God, it's hurting you. You're not going to change him. And you're not hurting him. But you're hurting yourself. Uh, God is unchangeable. Can I get a witness? It's one of the truths we believe about God. He is impeccable. He is unchangeable. Elihu, he corrects Job. And he can, corrects Job's friends and the misunderstandings about God. Elihu begins his third address, verses 1 to 8. Elihu makes a much-needed emphasis, verses 9 uh, through 11. You'll read them with me where the Bible says, By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. That's so, isn't it? You become oppressed, you become afflicted, you begin to carry a great load in your life. What do you do? You may tell your friends about it, but you're probably going to take it to God, then tell your friends about it. By virtue of the oppression, the weight you bear, the burden you carry, it drives us to cry out unto God. So he says so. He said they cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. Verse number 10, but none saith, where is my maker? Who giveth songs in the night. Aren't you glad he does that? Who teacheth us more than the beast of the earth and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Job, God is not distant. As you suffer, you think he's forsaken you, but he has not forsaken you. I was speaking with one of our men who's not here in, through text Thursday of last week, as a matter of fact, and we were just briefly mentioning in text how that um, you can look around even this sanctuary and you think, well, boy, they've got it together. It's all pie in the sky over there. But he was talking about how that even in all that, even his devotion last Thursday morning, he said, he said it reminded him that we all are facing struggles of some kind. And he said, Here, here's my devotion from this morning. And someone here may recognize this. Here was the devotion. Lift the veil. The burden is there. The fact that the peace, the light, and the joy of God are there is proof that the burden is there too. The burden God places squeezes the grapes and out comes the wine. Most of us see the wine only. That's about all we see is the good side of it all in everybody else's life. We think maybe God's walked off and left us. But we've all faced or are facing difficulties in our own lives some years back. It's been several years back now. I had the privilege of preaching one of the night services out at uh, Taylorsville and I preached out of 2 Corinthians 4 verses 7 to 12. In that chapter, it's the uh, we think not chapter. You get to look at Paul like nowhere else in the book of 2 Corinthians. He talked about not fainting in the body. It's amazing what he said about the body, the weariness of his own body, the body of the believer, the servant of God. And when I finished, we went out to the dining hall, and Brother Gillum came up to me, and he said, Preacher, he said, 
you preach that like you've had your guts cut out a time or two. I said, haven't we all? Have our hopes dashed? Crushed? Sure we have. If you've been in the journey long. He says to him, verses 9 and 10, when we suffer, we cry out to God. And he said, guess what, Job? God's there. We suffer. When we suffer, we cry out to God, and God is there. You think he's not there, Job, but he is there. Watch 9 and 10 again. By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. But none saith, where is God my maker who giveth songs in the night? There are none of us who can say, where is God my maker? Why? It's because he has pledged his presence to us. You say, preacher, I don't see evidences of him. I don't hear him. Doesn't change the fact he said he would never leave us. He'd never forsake us. And God cannot lie. I like that song, Misty Sings. I've loved that song for years. Standing somewhere in the shadows. The book of Esther testifies to it. You won't find the name of God in the book of Esther. But you sure do see a whole lot of God in that book, don't you? There he is over there in the shadows. God gives songs in the night, he says. He's the God who gives songs in the night. He comforts us with his presence. He comforts us with his peace. And he gives a song in the night. Brother Larry Winkler, um, I've heard him on a handful of occasions through the years. I've looked up to him for years. Brother Winkler uh, started preaching when he was 10 or 12 years old. I think he set out in Oklahoma. He had been preaching for 60 years now, I think. Right there close to it. Started preaching when he was a boy. Uh, he's scared of mice. He's terrified of rats. They put him in a room uh, at a church, and uh, he was sitting in the uh, sitting on the sofa, and he looked over on what little kitchen cabinet they had in the kitchenette uh, in a prophet's chamber, and he said, a big old rat run across the top. And he said, I got my clothes and went to my car and said, I slept there all week. <laughs> That's another one we're not going to have too much longer. I've never heard him preach. But what he didn't preach with the anointing of the Spirit of God upon him. To travel this country, crisscrossed it. They used to put him on trains, he says. They used to put him on trains as a boy. Let him out of school and he'd go preach meetings. He's a recluse, if you know anything about him. He's a recluse. Unique. Um... I've heard him tell on two or three occasions that um, that it doesn't matter where he has been. He said the devil gets after him. He said it doesn't matter if I'm in a hotel lonely and blue and homesick or if I'm sitting in an airplane trying to get home or to a meeting 30,000 feet altitude. He said the trio goes with me wherever I go and gives me songs in the night. Cheers him on. Isn't that a blessing? The trio goes with him. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Gives him songs in the night. Does God do that for his youngins? You better believe he does that for his youngins. In our times of greatest need, God's in the midst. I came across this quote last week by 
C.H. Spurgeon, any man can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when, he, when we can read the notes by daylight, but he is the skillful singer who can sing when there is not a ray of light by which to read. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of man. What do we do when trials come? We wait. We trust. As a matter of fact, uh, waiting is one of the mandates we don't like, but it's reiterated over and again in Scripture. We're all going to learn some patience, whether we want some of that or not. It's going to come with a journey. It's going to come with a journey. Perhaps your trial tonight's with a spouse, with a, with a child, on the job, with a friend, with a sickness, with some other struggle or something we've not even mentioned altogether. Wait on God. Wait on him. Trust him. He's right there in the midst of your trial, child of God. According to the Bible, and if the Bible's wrong there, I'm going to reject the rest of it too. It's true. Lastly, Elihu gives a valuable reminder in verses 12 to 16. First of all, verses 12 and 13, he gives a word regarding prayer. Then verses 14 through 16, he gives a personal word to Job. He gives a word regarding prayer, verses 12 and 13. You notice with me, he says, uh, There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of... um, But none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. He said, not only will he not hear it, but he won't even regard it. He continues his speech. He reminds Job and his friends here who God does hear, will hear, and who he won't hear. You notice he says in verse number 12, God does not hear, nor does he answer prideful prayer. Verse number 12, there they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Loud, proud, arrogant, boastful, haughty, high-minded. God said, I'm not, I'm not going to regard you. I'm not listening to it. Did you ever have your mom or your dad say, go on now, I'm not listening to it. Here God says, I'm not listening to that. Look at verse number 13. He says, God doesn't hear prayers of vanity. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Vanity. Something that's meaningless or selfish. Empty. God's not going to hear it. And then he closes with a personal word to Job, verses 14 to 16. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. Trust him, Job. That's what he says. He sees it all. It's there before him. He'll do right. Verse number 15, but now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. Now, now this is still Elihu speaking. He says, because of this, he said, Job, you've opened your mouth in vain. He multiplieth words without knowledge. He said, you didn't know when to be quiet earlier, Job. But you should have been quiet. You should not have missed your opportunity to be quiet, Job. You got that wrong. He had a personal word for Job. He's telling him, as we mentioned just a moment or two ago, Job, you got to be still. 
He's not telling him like Bildad did. You remember way back yonder, we were talking about last year, Bildad in his first, first speech, he basically said to Job, Job, you're just going to have to take your medicine. It's not what Elihu's saying. He's telling him to be still, be quiet, trust God. It may just be, Job, God's not finished with you. And we've read chapter 42, he's not finished with him. He's not finished with him. You will remember if you had the opportunity of being at Shady Grove the Wednesday night of their revival. Brother Thacker preached on Wednesday night. He preached out of Psalm 22, verses 1 to 5 was where he really zeroed in, right? And he preached on how to manage the silence of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, David wrote. How to manage the silence of God. It's a classic. As Doug Bearden would say, it's a classic. If you heard it, it changed, it's life-changing. How to manage the silence of God. And he went through those times in, in that He hit those high, those large spots in that chapter. Then he brought us down to the conclusion. You remember? I won't ever forget it. He said, now, in case you're here, and there were trying times in your past like it was in David's, he said, remember this, child of God. He said, hope thou in God. He said, in case you're there tonight wondering, now what am I going to do? He said, child of God, hope thou in God. He said, in case you go that route somewhere in the future through severe trial. He said, child of God, remember this. When you get there, hope thou in God. I've had to remind myself of that very recently. Hope thou in God. We've got a God we can anchor our faith in, Donald. This old world doesn't change him. It changes all around us, but it doesn't change him. That's who our faith is anchored in through Jesus Christ. And we glory in him and what he's provided for us. You say, preacher, how do you get through a tough place? You faith your way through it. Now, that doesn't mean you strain and scratch your head and Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God means you trust what God has said to you. You put one foot in front of the other, and you continue to walk with him. Let your feelings catch up tomorrow, or next week, or next month. Be faithful to him. Let's stand. Brother Johnny, dismiss us in prayer, will you please?